All right, Esther 4. Now, imagine, if you will, what it might be like if you were or someone was transported from 2,500 years ago and they hear these words. I hear the drums echoing tonight, but she hears only whispers of some quiet conversation. She's coming in 1230 flight. The moonlit wings reflect the stars that guide me toward salvation. I stopped an old man on the way. Hoping to find some old forgotten words or ancient melodies, he turned to me as if to say, Hurry, boy. It's waiting there for you. It's going to take a lot to drag me away from you. There's nothing that a hundred men or more could ever do. I bless the rains down in Africa. Going to take some time to do the things we never had. The wild dogs cry out in the night as they grow restless, longing for some solitary company. I know I must do what's right. As sure as Kilimanjaro rises like the Olympus above the Serengeti, I seek the cure to what's deep inside. Frightened of this thing that I've become, it's going to take a lot to drag me away from you. There's nothing that a hundred men or more could ever do. I bless the rains down in Africa. Now, what are those words? That's a song, right? That's Africa by Toto. We all know the song. How do we know the song? We've heard it on the radio a million times, and probably more of us than would like to admit have sung it at the top of our lungs in our cars. On the road, right? Show of hands, yeah. We did this as a family just this last week. Some of you even have it on your playlist. You don't have to raise your hand. Now, if someone from a different time and culture 2,500 years ago heard me read those words, they would be seriously confused. Why do a hundred men want to do something to this guy? And what in the world does it have to do with the rains down in Africa? And why do they need blessing? Right? We go, I get it, it's a song, it's kind of metaphorical, we sing it, it's got a great beat. But we understand what's being communicated. They would have very little context, experience, or category to put that song into. Their befuddlement and confusion at Africa by Toto might be what it's like for us as we come to Esther chapter 4. We're from a different time, a different country, and a different culture. And as we step into this chapter, it's going to seem foreign and strange. And let me give you a heads up. It will be more foreign and more strange than you think. We have very little context, very little experience, and no category really in our lived out lives to understand what's happening in Esther chapter 4. But the original audience knew exactly what was going down. And so our task today is to try to understand and even feel what they felt when they first read or heard this chapter. Esther 4 can be summarized with one word. And that word? Failure. Failure. Failure bursts forth from all over in this chapter. The people of God who are exiles living far from home are failing left, right, and center. And if we're honest, we, the people of God, who are also living as exiles far from home, we fail left, right, and center as well. 
The question we will look to answer as we walk through Esther chapter 4 is this. How should we respond when we fail? Because we all fail. How should we respond when we fail? Now Mordecai and Esther were so kind to share their failures with us. And as we walk through the chapter, we're going to learn a thing or two. Not just about what they did, but about what we do and how to respond. So we're going to pick up the action in Esther chapter 4, verse 1. I can't summarize all that it's gone before, but we know that Esther has won a sleeping with the king contest, and so she's now queen. Um, Mordecai was an arrogant buffoon, and he refused to bow to Haman, and now all the Jews are going to be killed. So that backfired. And so Mordecai is now dealing with his blind arrogance, and we get to failure number one, which is a pseudo-spirituality. We see this in Esther chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Look at verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. And he went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. Now, say whatever you want about Mordecai, but this man was connected. The ink is barely dry on Ahasuerus or Xerxes' evil decree, and Mordecai is hearing of it, and he jumps into action. He tears his clothes. He puts on sackcloth. He puts ashes and dust on his head. Those were the classic responses to repentance. Sackcloth, of course, symbolized self-humiliation Ashes signifying being brought low to the dirt. So Mordecai, he's dressed like he is sorry. He's repentant. So why is this pseudo or false spirituality? Because of what he does not do. He does not pray. Notice the text does not say that he calls out, on the, calls out to the Lord. Instead, he wept aloud so that everybody in the city could hear. And he went to the king's gate. Now, last week, he flaunted the law by not respecting Cayman. This week, magically, he observes the law by not going in sackcloth and ashes past the king's gate. Why did the change, Mordecai? If you really want to get the king's attention, go through the gate and say, hey, listen, look at me, sackcloth and ashes. The reason is because he went out to be seen by the people of Susa. He was not calling out to the Lord. Mordecai weeps but does not call on the Lord to rescue him or help him. He weeps and wears the garments of mourning merely to get the attention of the people around him. He dressed as a mourner, but that was only skin deep, as it were. Now, a proper example of repentance is in 1 Chronicles 21. David the king called for a census, which was to measure his strength and it was a way in which he could rely on himself instead of the Lord. And David is confronted by the angel of the Lord. Now notice his response. And David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, sackcloth fell on their faces. And David spoke to God. Now notice he doesn't go out into Jerusalem. He doesn't put on sackcloth and ashes and go, Oh, guys, there's the angel of the Lord. He's got a sword. Watch out. He doesn't do any of that stuff. 
he, what does he do? <laughs> he, he calls out, he says to the Lord, was it not I who gave the command to number the people? Is it not I who have sinned and done great evil? But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house, but do not let this plague be on your people. He calls out to the Lord and he asks for help. Mordecai, he was trying to get everybody's attention. Mordecai was like a trick-or-treater, really. In a few days, people are going to come to our doors and they're going to be dressed up with masks and they're going to look like all manner of things. And they're going to ring the doorbell and say, trick-or-treat. And when you see somebody dressed as, I don't know, a Pokemon or whoever, you're not going to think, oh, this person really is a Pokemon. You're going to give them candy because that's what they want. Mordecai, he's playing dress-up, acting so that he might get something from the people of Susa. See, his failure is something that I think we can all succumb to. Do we ever do things so that other people think we are spiritual? Or so that we might leave a good impression on other people? Or do we do things to keep up spiritual appearances? We can fail and we, we do succumb to this kind of pseudo-spirituality. We know how to use the right words. We give all the right answers. We can say, I'm really praying about that. When we're not praying about it, we're just thinking about it. We can say, I'm waiting to see how the Lord leads me. But we're not waiting to see how the Lord leads us. We just say that because that's the thing to say as Christians. And it can all be for show. We can sing the songs. We can close our eyes when we pray. And it's just a dress-up act. We can play Christians like Mordecai, played like he was mourning for sin. And when we merely do religious activities without our heart engaged, we're perpetrating a sham. We don't do religious rituals to get things from Jesus. We get Jesus and then we serve him. And it's possible, even as a Christian, to talk about trusting God, teach about trusting God, without really knowing what it's like to trust God. We all can fail when it comes to the test of pseudo-spirituality. That's the first failure. The second failure is one of Esther. Esther's failure, this time, is self-focus. And we see this from three, chapter, verses 3 through 5. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai, so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hafek, one of the king's eunuch, eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Why do I self, say self-focus? Because the message of the, of, the, of the decree of Xerxes has gone around the world, around the known world. All the Jews were mourning and lamenting, and guess who didn't know? Esther. She had no idea. Now Mordecai, he's not in the king's court, but he knows. A decree has gone out that all Jews must die. 
Esther could have known this, but she had no idea. Maybe. Well, we know she's removed from the people of God. We know that she's pretending not to be one of the members of the people of God. She, she became queen, and she's been playing the part of a committed pagan, married to someone to whom the Bible forbade. She, she may have been consumed with the concerns of the court. And maybe, as we'll see, she's going to be more worried about the fact that the king hadn't called her in 30 days. Or maybe she just loved the mani-pedis that were going on all the time up there in the royal house. I don't know. Now, don't get me wrong. It's natural. It's natural to be most aware of our own troubles and trials and fears and concerns. But there's a complete absence of concern here for her people. She doesn't seem to even have the category of, I'm Jewish, I'm queen, what does that mean? She's self-focused. And we can feel this way as well. It's easy, as exiles, living far from home, to be so consumed with our own purposes, our own concerns, our own agendas, our own pursuits, our own challenges, that we don't pick up our heads to ask how other people are doing. Or, we don't live a life connected to other people so that they will know, we will know when they need help or when they're doing poorly. It's very easy to be self-consumed and stop asking questions of other people but do all the talking. It's easy to be self-focused. Do we follow up with people when we know they're struggling? Or are we the ones who always feel like we're wronged? Do we feel like the most important thing is that we get a say or that people understand our perspective? Or that our gifts, my gift, gets to be primary? See, this kind of self-focus is a failure all of us are prone to. I see it in Mordecai. Mordecai, I see it in myself. So we've seen two failures, pseudo-spirituality and self-focus. Now we're to misplaced trust. We go eeny, meeny, miny, mo, back to mo, the Mordecai. Failure number three, from verse 6 to 11, misplaced trust. Hathak, that's uh, Esther's trusted eunuch, went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Remember, Mordecai wants to be seen. There he is out in the open. And Mordecai told him all that happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman promised to pay the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Remember, 330 tons of silver. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction. That he, may, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. This guy knows the score. Then Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these 30 days. So, 
Esther sends the eunuch and Hatha gets his 10,000 steps in going back and forth and back and forth to try to find out why Mordecai is dressed like John the Baptist out in front of the king's gates. Now Mordecai gives the lowdown complete with the copy of the decree which makes Esther's ignorance of it all the more inexcusable. And he makes a request of her. What does he ask her to do? Does he say, Esther, cry out to the Lord. Who knows what he might do? Plead favor from our God. Beg the Lord for help. Remind. Does he remind her that the Lord's in control and she can trust him? No. What does he do? Verse 8 is the key. Look at verse 8. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to do what? To go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of the people. That language of begging and pleading is language that should be attributed to God. And when you see in other places in the Old Testament people beg and plead to the Lord for the Lord to move on their behalf. But that's not the picture we see here. God is far off stage. And Mordecai doesn't even, doesn't even make a move to even tip his hat. Mordecai sees that Xerxes is the one with all the power, so he's the one we need to focus all of our attention on. Mordecai's acting as Xerxes is the ultimate authority over the land. But that's not true. He should be begging the favor of God and pleading with him on behalf of the people. God is the one who has and occupies for all time the throne above all other thrones. But for Mordecai, his trust is in what the king will do or won't do. His trust is in making a good plan. His trust is ensuring that we've got all the, all the ducks lined up in a row so that we can present an airtight case to Xerxes so that he might hold his arm back from destroying the Jews. It's so easy to put faith in political leaders and in our own plans. When stuff goes wrong, you know the first thing I do? I start making plans. Okay, if that happens, this, 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 and that. That's what I'm going to do. So simple. But it's not. That's an evidence of me having misplaced trust, not just in political leaders, but in myself. Believing that I can come up with a plan that's going to work. As if all I have to do is think hard enough and figure something out, puzzle it through, and things are going to be okay. False. That's me living like God's not real. See, here's an example. Here's an example of someone crying out to the Lord for help and exhibiting the appropriate kind of trust in the Lord. Psalm 25. Turn to me, David says, and be gracious to me. For I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Distresses, sorry. Consider my afflictions and my trouble and forgive my sins. 
Notice David doesn't hold back with expressing what he wants or where he needs help, but he's self-aware enough to know that his trust is in the Lord, the only one, the only one who can deliver him from his distresses, the only one who can consider his affliction and his trouble and help him and strengthen him and forgive his sins. But Mordecai, all his trust is wrapped up in what Xerxes will or won't do. And we can feel that way as well. You know, friends, human leaders, humans of any kind, make rotten gods. Always. Always. It's very easy. In fact, we can be tempted this way, all of us, to think that our only hope as a nation is having the right political leaders in place. I'm not saying political leaders don't matter. I'm not pressing a false dichotomy suggesting that we should take a passive approach to involvement in our nation. Not at all. We should be good citizens of this country. We should, but, but if there is anything for us to, to invest our precious trust in, it is not to our national leaders or our local leaders or our state leaders because if we do, woe to us. We should pray for our leaders. We should hope and work for good leaders. We should vote for good leaders. But we should also not make the mistake that Mordecai makes here. No human holds the power the Lord does, no matter how things seem. When we invest the majority of our trust into leaders that are here today, gone tomorrow, and forgotten the next day, we consign ourselves to a life of supreme disappointment and failure. Misplaced trust is more deadly than we think. Kings come and go. But the king of kings rules forever. Our father in heaven and his hallowed name, he is the only one to whom we can safely entrust ourselves to. And it's a failure to trust in anything or anyone else. So we've seen three failures thus far. And as I look at them, it's like I'm looking in the mirror. Pseudo-spirituality, self-focus, Misplaced trust. Now, the last failure, failure number four, is resignation. And we see this from Esther. It's her turn. Mordecai, Esther, Mordecai, Esther. Verse 12, down to verse 17. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. There he could mention God. He does not. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night and day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything Esther had ordered him to do. Now, as we read earlier, she could not just approach the king anytime she wanted. She had to be called. 
And Esther was keenly aware that this was a king not to be crossed because her predecessor Vashti did not do what the king wanted. She knew that, and she's like, man, I'm not made of anything different than Vashti. If I go in, I could be dead. She also had no read on the king because he hadn't called her for a month. And you can bet your grits that he wasn't sleeping alone. She surely felt insecure about what was going on. And Mordecai basically says, listen, if you don't go, you're going to die because you're a Jew. If you go, you could die. Either way, you're dead. And so why do I say that she gave up? Verse 16, the last sentence of verse 16. Then I will go to the king, notice, though it is against the law. I mean, this isn't exactly Aragorn at the Black Gates right here. Sorry for the Lord of the Rings reference. I know I'm going to get emails about that. Save them! This is, though, I, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Now, when we read that in English, it sounds heroic, almost like, dun 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 my life and my future is as of nothing. I am here, one who has been put here by the hand of God to save my people. That's not how it is. The Hebrew grammar indicates a sense of resignation, not courage. And we could paraphrase what she says like this. I'm dead anyway. Why not? I'll go. What does it matter? She regarded her death as already done. Now, I'm not saying, certainly, that there's not a lack of courage, that there's a complete lack of courage in what she's about to do. It was bold to approach the king, knowing that she might die. But we have to ask the question, why now, Esther? Why did you agree to be a part of the one-night stand contest and not say, if I perish, I perish then? Why did you agree to eat unclean food contrary to the law of God and not say, if I perish, I perish then? Why did you sleep with someone not your husband? Instead of saying, if I perish, I perish, then. Why did you marry an uncircumcised pagan? Instead of saying, if I perish, I perish. She waited till here. Ian Dugan says, Esther's speech is a statement of resignation to the inevitable rather than one of robust faith. A whimper rather than a bark. And she kind of just gave up. Okay, whatever, I'm dead, I'll go. And then she said this after two strange pseudo-spiritual activities. She calls for a fast of all the Jews. Food and water. Here's the problem. It's Passover. You don't fast at Passover. If there's one time in the whole calendar of the Jews, it's Passover, you eat. And you remember that you were once enslaved in the land of Egypt. And the Lord rescued you with a mighty right hand. And you remember that by eating. And what she's doing is saying, fast. She didn't even know it's Passover. She's woefully out of touch. There would be nothing more profitable for the Jews than celebrating a past rescue and praying for a future one. The other thing she does that's confusing is she calls her ladies in waiting to fast. Now, they're pagans. What good does a pagan have when it comes to fast? They're just, that does no good. They're just hungry and thirsty. It does no spiritual benefit for her. She's basically like, if I'm fasting, all y'all are fasting too. 
And that's just the way it's going to be. But you see here what she's doing. She's flailing and grasping about for something or anything that might help. The die is cast, and Esther would go to the king and mediate for the people of God, even though it was with a sort or a measure of resignation. And you know what? We can fail the same way. When trouble hits, and it hits us hard, when trouble hits us hard right between the eyes, we can forget about God's goodness and his promises. We can experience trials so difficult that all of our perspective about what God has done for us and who we are in Christ is jettisoned. We can experience such trial and suffering and hurt so much that we can just do anything to get the pain away. And we can say things like, why am I doing this? Why is it so hard to follow Jesus? What is all this for? It's too hard. I'm giving up. I think we've all been there. I have. Friends, that's Esther 4. But how are we to respond to Esther 4? Now that we visited Susa 2,500 years ago and see that Mordecai and Esther are a lot like us. How do we, how do we respond when we see ourselves, at times, exhibiting a pseudo-spirituality, or a self-focus, or misplaced trust, or just giving up. I've been there, all of those things. All of them. And I think I'm not the only one. So what do we do? Do we just look at Esther and Mordecai and say, I'm not going to be like them. They're morons. No, is the answer to that. But remember, this story does not end here. Now, stunningly, here's a spoiler. Mordecai and Esther, failures and all, are going to be the agents that God will use to save the people of God. Now, these people deserve better heroes than Mordecai and Esther, but the Lord used them, all their flaws, with all their flaws, with all their failures, to rescue the people. What does this mean? Well... We, the people of God, are both alike and unlike Mordecai and Esther. We're like them because we're like them because we're in exile and we've failed too. When all manner of pseudo spirituality, self focus, misplaced trust, and resignation, we could add other things to the list. But here's one way we're different. We have a different mediator who has gone to a king, a higher king than Xerxes or Ahasuerus, whatever you want to call him, on our behalf. He did not merely resign himself to say, if I perish, I perish. No, he came to die to save people who were flawed and failures like us. He stepped forward and went, I will go. I will stand in the place of sinners. I will sit in the seat. I, I will be mocked. I will be spat upon. He doesn't say, okay, if it's the only way, I guess I'll go. What does it matter? I'm going to die anyway. No. The writer of the Hebrew says this, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy, the joy that was set before him, what's that joy? 
rising from the dead, being with his Father, and bringing his people to himself for that joy that was set before him. What did he do? He endured the cross, despising the shame, meaning that he didn't care about what people thought when he was hung on the cross. He didn't care to think, well, if their leader dies, how strong could he be? He didn't care that he would be regarded as a criminal, as an outcast, as a crucified leader. He didn't care about any of that. What he cared about was the joy that was set before him after the resurrection. And now he is seated at the right hand of the Father on high. The public shame of the cross to him was a small and fleeting thing. Even the, the, the reality that he had to carry our sins upon himself. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the very righteousness of God. He, friends, is our mediator. So what do we do when we fail? We look to him. We look to him. He did not fail. There is no story of Jesus like Mordecai and Esther. He never once. Now, he, he endured the ultimate exile. Here is Jesus, God the Son, who was never created, but instead created all things through the word of his mouth and holds all things together. He sees his people in rebellion, and what does he do? He comes to live among them as one of them. That is the ultimate exile. And never once did he exhibit pseudo-spirituality. He could have, think about it, he could, have, he could have performed all kinds of wicked, awesome signs and wonders. He could have said, watch this, guys. Boom, there goes a volcano. He could have said, watch this, guys. Boom, there goes a star. He didn't do any of that. He could have done all kinds of things to the raves of the crowds. But that would have just been a pseudo-spirituality. But he was authentic. He was looking for those not who would gather to a show, but who wanted the words of life. He, he never, never once manifested a self-focus. He left paradise with his father to save mankind. He became one of his creations to save his rebellious creatures. And his ministry for us continues. He is looking to us more often than we look to him. He lives now to intercede for us by name. Your name, Christian, is not off his lips. He prays for you now, in this moment. Even Jesus endured, he endured the ultimate exile, but he never failed the way we did. He never once, never once manifested misplaced trust. If there's ever anyone who could have trusted himself, it's Jesus. But he was dependent on the Father. He trusted his father even when his soul felt like it would be broken beyond repair, when he was in such agony in the garden that he sweat blood. But even there, he trusted his father saying, yet not my will, but your will be done. No misplaced trust here. Jesus, the ultimate exile, never failed the way we do. Never did he ever give up. But he's always long-suffering. He stayed true when he was abandoned by all his friends. Even those friends who said, I will fight and I will die alongside with you. But when the first sign of trouble comes, boom, they're gone. He could have quit. If you've ever experienced betrayal, you know how hard that is. He could have quit. But he stayed on course. 
And he was rejected in a way that we, by the Father, to carry the scorn for our sins in a way we can't really understand and will never really understand. He stayed on course. And he remains long-suffering with his exiles here on earth. Friends, we are apt to fail. See, when you become a Christian, you don't stop failing. You keep failing, but the difference is you can admit it now. You can admit it. Yeah, we all drop the ball. We all fail. But our Savior doesn't. Our substitute doesn't. Our champion doesn't. Our mediator doesn't. And that makes all the difference. Do we need to grow? Yeah. Am I saying, do whatever you want and just ask forgiveness? No. But I am saying, we have a mediator. We have a substitute who has never failed. And he has imputed to us his righteousness. His standing before God is now ours. We have failed, friends. We are failing. We will fail again. But look instead, instead of looking to your failures, failures, look to Jesus, your champion. He did not fail. He cannot fail. And he will not fail. So remember our question from the beginning, how should we respond when we fail? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, who uses penitent failures like us. Look to Jesus, who uses penitent failures like us. Isn't that ironic? A couple brief thoughts as we close. Go to Jesus again and again and again and again. The greatest failure is, is not when you fail. You fail and go, oh my gosh. You can feel so bad and you can think, oh my goodness, I need to do all these things to be worthy again. No, you're not worthy now, nor were you ever worthy. Go to Jesus. Don't hide or isolate from, your, from the Lord or others. Don't blame the Lord or others. Don't get angry with the Lord or others. Don't be tempted for self-atonement by wanting to hurt yourself or others so that you can feel better. Don't deflect by not admitting your failure. Instead, go to Jesus. You have no greater friend. Though he never failed, he upholds those exiles who fail. He offers strength to the weak. And the key is just admitting you're weak and admitting you fail. And we can think far too often in human terms when it comes to Jesus. He's never going to send the penitent away. He's never going to say, again, oh my gosh. He's never going to say, boy, you're not life-giving for me. He's never going to say, you're such a drain, man. He's never going to say, one more chance. He always welcomes the penitent. What do we do when we fail? Go to Jesus. He welcomes the penitent. He's safe in the sense that he's not going to use your sin against you because your sin has already been held against him. He will always welcome you back no matter where you have been or how far you've wandered. The same is true for those here who are not believers, who are not following Jesus. Here's the paradox. 
You're far more broken than you even imagine or can conceive of. But you're also invited to experience a love and an acceptance that's far more significant than you even know. Trust in Jesus today. If you want to know what that means, talk to a Christian. They can tell you all about that. We'll have people up here who can explain that as well. What do we do when we fail? We go go to Jesus. We look to Jesus. He always welcomes penitent sinners, failures. And lastly, Jesus uses penitent exiles. Now listen, if I'm in charge when it comes to Esther chapter 4, I'm like, okay, we played the angel of the Lord card in 1 Chronicles 21. Let's send him down to do some work in Susan. Let's get that sword out and go, okay, you're dead, you're dead, you're dead, you're dead. Everybody's dead. I'm the king. But that's not what happens. What happens is the Lord uses Esther and Mordecai. What does that mean? You might think I'm far too compromised to be of any use to the kingdom. False. If you recognize your failure, if you go to him and ask for forgiveness, he can and will use you. Let me ask this. What's more powerful, your failure or his victory? If you think your failure, you think way too highly of yourself. Your, his victory is. See, one of the reasons we read Old Testament narratives is to give us hope because we read these biblical stories and we go, man, these people are a mess. They're, whew. yeah, this is like, this is not like a lifetime special. This is like showtime here. This is bad news. Mordecai and Esther, Abraham, Moses, David, Gideon, all miserable failures in their own way, and yet the Lord used them for his purposes. I know this. If you are here and you are a Christian, if you have put your faith in Christ, if you trust him to be your substitute, what Mordecai said of Esther is also true of you and me and all of us. And who knows? Whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You have, friend. You have. I can tell you that. Don't let your failure get in the way. Go to the Lord with your failures. Don't come to terms with your failures. Go to the Lord, ask forgiveness, but yet allow yourself to step into obedience so that you might be used by the Lord to do things in this day and age for His kingdom. Why? Because the Lord only uses one kind of person. The Lord Jesus uses one kind of person. Who is that? Penitent failures like us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I am grateful that you have not held my sins, our sins against us. I'm grateful that you are kind and merciful. That you exhibit steadfast love. We don't deserve any of those things. And Lord, as we look at the account of Esther and Mordecai, we see you move despite their failures. And really, if we look at our own stories and recognize the account of what's gone before in our lives, what's gone before in the lives of every Christian, is that you use them despite their failures. So I pray, Lord, that we would be a penitent people, willing to admit our failures, but also not self-righteously sitting on the side saying there's nothing that the Lord can do with me. 
Oh, no. Lord, we know you work in and through penitent failures like us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a people who believe your victory stronger and greater than our failure. I pray for those who were maybe aware of one of the categories as we talked about, be it pseudo-spirituality, be it a self-focus, be it a misplaced trust, or maybe even just giving up, Lord. If any of those rang true, I pray, Lord, that you would not just bring conviction or make them feel bad, Lord. I pray that that conviction would turn into a confession. And that confession would be just calling on the Lord to help. And so, Lord, I pray that we, as a company of penitent failures, might see you work and move through us. Because we know that you are strong. We are weak. But it's all about you, not us. And Jesus, it's in your mighty name that we pray. Amen.